Good morning, I'm gonna be reading from Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but, also, but, but shall perform to the, to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no, and anything more than this comes from evil. Thank you, Julie. If you have your Bible or your, your Bible app on whatever device you're playing your games on already this morning, <laughs> you could turn to Matthew 5, or we're going to also be in Deuteronomy chapter 30. If you've not picked up the last few weeks, and maybe it's been because you've not been with us, so I'll just remind everyone that it's been fairly interesting to kind of parallel the Sermon on the Mount with some of the things we read either in the prophets or this morning, for instance, from the book of Deuteronomy, which tells us that Jesus has always some things on his mind that he learned as a child. That is, as, as a good young Jewish lad, he would have learned the Torah and he would have been familiar, familiar with the warnings of the prophets. And so when we hear him in the Sermon on the Mount, it really sounds as though he's calling back to the echoes that the people of God would have heard throughout their entire history and experience. Which is to say, which is to say that what God has always been up to, interested in, has always been the same thing. Interested that there would be a witness a group of people who would uh, represent him in flesh and blood on the planet. But because of our tendencies to follow our hearts that the Scripture says are deceitful above all things, who can know them, he gave himself to show us exactly what that looks like in Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord God, that the Scriptures contain a book whose name means the second giving of the law indicates that we, all human beings, have a hard time getting it right the first time. 
And when we think we can manage our impulses, control our infractions, Jesus issues his, but I say to you, that takes away the cover for our heart's deception that what matters is the letter of the law. Were we capable of keeping the law, the proof would be in how we treat others rather than whether or not we had a clean record. In other words, God, in Jesus we discover that the law's aim is not to restrict our fun, but to create a community of care. When God's people fail to create a community of care, Jesus reveals the God who is love, creates the community through His Spirit for us and with us. So Lord, may today what is heard be truth and only truth, and all God's people say. Did you see about the story about Mr. Beast? It made the, uh, uh, one of the local morning network shows recently. I mean, you may not be familiar with this most successful YouTube content creator. Like the fourth, he's got the fourth most subscribers to his YouTube channel, which means some of them are paying just to see him do his thing. Here's how the wiki brief briefly describes him. Jimmy Donaldson, better known as Mr. Beast, is an American YouTuber and philanthropist. He is credited with pioneering a genre of YouTube videos that centers on expensive stunts. His YouTube channel reached 130 million subscribers in January of this year. Just let 130 million people watching, subscribing to your YouTube channel, just kind of let that filter down a little bit and think, what would it mean if everyone gave a dollar? Yikes. The fourth most subscribed to on the platform. Donaldson is 24 years old. Oh, to be potentially as wealthy at 24, right? Too bad there wasn't a YouTube when we were kids. We might have could have created a ton of content, but it might not have been admissible. Mr. Beast's most recent stunt that made the news, that made the morning show rounds, was he set out to take some of his wealth and see if he couldn't help people who couldn't see to see. He, he claimed that he wanted to cure blindness. So literally around the world, he vetted people from, from many different countries and set them up to receive either a procedure or surgery, whatever was necessary, so that he could help them to see. Country after country, video after video, it was reported that some whose vision was very, very poor could now see, some who hadn't seen now see. And so he, he kind of made this uh, um, splash in an entirely different way than he had in his normal uh, platform on YouTube. Steve Aquino, who writes for TechCrunch, he took exception with all the accolades that Mr. Beast was receiving. Now, he, didn't, he wasn't upset that, that there was a decision that some people made to go through and let some, somebody they didn't know pay for surgeries and procedures that had the chance, the possibility of helping them to see better. But he picks a bone with the idea that what makes a person better is to be rid of all their disabilities. He calls out ableism. Reading the piece, I, I couldn't help but recall Ken Miedema. If you've heard of Ken, uh, Ken was born almost blind. 
He began playing the piano at the age of five, and that was in 1948. Eventually, Miedema earned a music degree from Michigan State University. He studied piano and voice. I first heard Ken at a concert when I was a teenager, 20 years ago, no longer a teenager. Uh, Ken was at a national pastor's conference in San Diego. He was one of the featured artists, and so as each preacher or speaker would make their way to the platform with something maybe similar to this, he was seated in a place just off stage on a stool. He would listen intently. And as soon as the preacher or speaker were finished, he would make his way to the piano that was on the platform, and he would begin playing the tone of the music, whether it was kind of dirge-like or whether it was kind of really happily melodic, all depended on what he heard in the message, in the talk. So in his mind, he was improvising what sort of sound would go along with that kind of message. And then right there, also on the spot, he improvised the words to the songs that he would sing. He had no idea ahead of time. He couldn't read, so if they had given him the text, he wouldn't know what it would be saying anyway. But there he was, on stage, almost blind, and he could hear. It's always amazed me that Ken Miedema could see better than most of us with 20-20 vision. He'll be 80 should he live in December till December. Aquino points out that the world won't necessarily be a better place, not even be a perfect place, if every disability were cured. He writes this, In the broadest lens, the biggest problem with wanting to cure blindness is that it reinforces a moral superiority of sorts by those without disabilities over those who are disabled. Although not confronted nearly as often as racism and sexism, Systemic ableism is pervasive through all parts of society, he writes. The fact of the matter is that the majority of abled people view disability as a failure of the human condition. As such, people with disabilities should be mourned and pitied. He adds, yet the human body isn't some soulless, inanimate machine that requires perfection in order to work properly. Or have value. Anyway, what he's saying is sometimes we just don't get it. If the condition of our bodies doesn't define us, then we are all in the same boat attempting to make sense of what we are doing here and what we are doing here. Do you get the difference in the inflection? If we're all in the same boat, then we're all trying to answer the question, what are we doing here? What are we doing here? And at the same time asking, what are we doing here? Moses. Moses is nearing his swan song, coming up on the end of the book of Deuteronomy. He weathered those who saw the same thing, but with different conclusions. I mean, remember, Moses endured majority rule. Remember that time? Ten spies came back after spying out the land that they had been promised. 
And they determined there was no possible way they, ready, they could take the land. Two spies came back and said, God would give us the land because he made the promise. You get the difference? The people were divided between what they could do and what God would do. And the vote, man, it wasn't even close. In a 10 to 2 decision, what the people could not do won out. Do you get the irony of that? I mean, I mean the, the irony is that they were right. They were right to confess what they could not do. The failure was to forget that God had made a promise and He is always able to keep His promise. It seems, it seems like an obvious decision, really. Moses put before the people in our text for this morning, chapter 30, beginning in verse 15. Gee, Moses does it again. He puts before the people a similar choice in a similar set of circumstances just before they're to enter into that land, all, uh, uh, all, all just after making this decision. You, you know what happens. Moses, he, he gets to look in, but he doesn't get to go in. Joshua gives us what happens when they go in. But just before all of that, Moses has gathered all the people, and he says, See, I have set before you today life and death. Essentially, it's the same decision, isn't it? They're having left Egypt, having been liberated by this murdering Moses. Don't forget, he did and was. Sending spies into the land, and they came back with a 10 to 2 vote. They had the same decision. I present to you the opportunity of life and death. What'd they choose? Those, all but Joshua and Caleb, the two spies, all the other 10, Well, they died wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Here he is. It's got to be deja vu for Moses. He's standing there. I mean, mean, just think about this. We are in the book of Deuteronomy. It, It should not be lost on us that if we can't capture it by reading the stories in the scriptures, that we just sometimes don't get it, that we're a little bit thick-headed, just remember that the last book of the Torah that any young person would ever learn from was the book of Deuteronomy. Now, why Deuteronomy? Well, it means to law. Or, it means the second giving of the law. That there had to be a second giving of the law means we missed the first. It means that we didn't listen the first time. That there has to be a second time is a clear indication that there is something about us that is more fixated on what we can or can't do than on what God would or has promised to do. We'll always choose, generally, always, deciding essentially on what we can or cannot do. What's implied here is that a new group of people who have the history in front of them, I mean, like the people who, who died over that 40 years, I mean, every young person had to know what was going on. What are we wandering around in circles for all this time? One by one, watching their forebears die in the wilderness. 
I just have to think that they would understand that this had happened before where, well, in fact, if we just keep reading the story of God's people, we find that what happens to them is they continue to make the decision rooted in what they can or cannot do rather than what God promised to do. And it came to pass what Moses would say, they would not be living long in the land that you're crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. I mean, I don't know how often you do what preachers sometimes do and try to get the chronology down. And we're thinking, well, Moses was about here and, and, and King Saul took over about here and Solomon lasted to about here. And then it was a disaster after that. But it was a disaster after that. And, and the decisions resulted in the people eventually not possessing and enjoying the land that they had been promised. In fact, the land became really someone else's. In fact, they were living in a land God had promised, but it was in possession of another superpower. Because they always seemed to choose based on what they could or could not do, and not on what God would or promised to do. I mean, given the picture of a preferred future, the people seemed unable to secure the future themselves. Human beings, we have made it clear that no matter how clear a word we get from God we receive, our hearts get in the way. I mean, that is, after all, the definition of idol worship. I know, we're, we're more sophisticated today. We don't make our idols out of wood and stone and metal and such. We do find other things to make our idols and an, an idol actually is really just self-worship. You, you know that, right? And there, it's nothing. It's an inanimate object that you attribute certain virtues and values to and certain activities to, which actually are projections of what you and I want. So our idols are really just we're, we're giving attention to what we want. So we love what we... We love the idea of loving something. We love the idea of loving ourselves. Our hearts, decide, uh, our hearts deceive us, the scripture reminds us, and it says all of us, not just a few of us. That's why I think, G, that's why I think Deuteronomy was on Jesus' mind when he gave this section of the Sermon on the Mount that, that Julie read just a bit ago. Uh, Julie uh, read that, that passage after the, the Beatitudes, the, the blesseds are these people, reminding us that the people who had been considered less valuable were valuable for the kingdom. I mean, go back and read the list again in the Beatitudes and take every description of those who are there, those who are, are mourning and those who are meek and so on, and those were the people that had been discarded. They had been neglected. They, they couldn't quite measure up. They didn't have the characters of strength and fortitude and determination. They were considered those who were poor and, and whiny. They've been neglected and disregarded. They've been marginalized and emasculated. Not fit for anybody's religious group at all. And when we get to Jesus's, but I say to you, it seems an awful lot like Jesus has heard the song that Alex read a minute ago. Happy are those whose way is blameless, 
who walk in the law of the Lord. Happy are those who keep his decrees, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to keep be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Look, if it is a matter of keeping the law, then few of us are happy. I mean, if that, if that is what literally makes us happy... A few of us are, in fact, happy. I mean, if we go on and read the song that is that massive Psalm 119, we find out that the same consequences that Moses uttered would, would come to those who didn't keep the law, it, it's embedded in the song. The same things. The same things Moses said would happen if you failed to keep the law, or if you weren't obedient. The psalm says the same thing. You may be happy, but like if you don't, here's what happens. Like unhappiness follows you. So maybe this is, this is what Jesus had in mind. Maybe this is what he was up to. He, he knew that the people who had been described in the Beatitudes were excited that the kingdom had come to them, for them, and with them. But over here you had this group also listening in who were pretty convinced that they had been They've been pretty good at keeping the law. Now listen, the hardest thing in the world is to convince someone who thinks they're perfect that they're not. Hardest thing in the world. Have you ever tried? It's a no-win, right? Because every time you say, but what about, but what about, they've got an answer. And the religious powerful here in Jesus' day when they heard that Jesus was kind of ratcheting up the, the law, they're like, yeah. I mean, look, I've got my scorecard. I keep in my pocket. And I have remembered every Sabbath day, and I've kept it holy. I've, I've honored my parents in the most general of senses. I haven't stole from anybody. I haven't killed anyone. I haven't coveted. I haven't, I, I haven't cheated with my neighbor's wife. I, I, look, I've, I can show you. I've got all of this. Jesus probably knows full well that when they're sitting there, they're thinking, well, I'm glad Jesus shows pity on these people, but I don't need any pity because I got my scorecard to show you how good I am. So what does Jesus do? Oh. You, you know, you can read things too literally. Now, don't be scared. I know we're in a Baptist church and we read the Bible literally and all that business. But you do know you can read it too literally. I mean, if indeed all that matters is you haven't done any of those things, I'm going to be pretty sure. The vast majority in this room are good. You probably got the same scorecard. You haven't stolen from anybody. Maybe a Hot Wheel when you were a kid, but you know, you, you, you've not stolen from anybody. You know, you haven't killed anybody. You've been faithful. You've not plotted to get your neighbor's stuff. Probably nearly all of us could say, man, if that's the measure, I'm good. Those are the people who are looking down at that other group because in their minds, the keeping of the law is a thing that gives them their privilege. So what's Jesus do? I mean, listen, Dallas Woodward was right. Jesus is the smartest human being to ever live. 
So seeing their piety and their self-righteousness looks over and goes, oh, you've heard it said, thou shalt not kill. But I say to you, Jesus takes a sixth commandment and he winds it up so tight that there isn't anybody who can escape it. He says, here's a progression. Ultimately, if you decide that you can um, be angry and angry is your diet, you know anybody like that, right? Nah, we don't know anybody who's, where anger is their diet. You do, right? Yeah, mad at everything all the time uh, at anybody. When you get to the place where you're angry all the time, that's your, you have a steady diet of anger. Jesus, you have already killed somebody. And you didn't lift a hand. You've heard it said, the letter of the law, you shouldn't kill. But I'm telling you, if you've got anger in your heart such that you wish someone were dead, you might as well pull the trigger, plunge the knife in, shot the arrow, give them an IED. What is that? IED? Isn't that an individual explosive device? Yeah, plant them. That's what he says. Well, in, in essence, what Jesus does is take the commandments that they're self-righteous about, and then he turns them on his head and said, listen, you fellows who think that you have been so faithful to your spouses, let me tell you something. When your eyeballs start wandering, you start thinking, oh, she is something else. wonder what it would be like to hang out with her. I'm cleaning it up here. Jesus says, you've already committed adultery in your heart. You remember that scorecard we had a while ago? We'd like to stay with that one. Be general, be literal. Quit dabbling in the things that lead to those conditions. Jesus knew precisely what he was doing the religious powerful had enforced the law so that they could create the conditions where they were always better than somebody else. If there is a malady that we Christians have ongoing, is we tend to create laws that we know we can keep so that we can always feel better about somebody else because we know they can't. Ouch. But that's what Jesus does. Jesus gets us all. He's not going to let anyone off the hook for what they think they can hide in their hearts. It leaves us, it leaves us wondering, well, what do we do then? I mean, if Jesus is on to us, if he knows our tactics if he is well aware that we use the goodness of the law in order to feel better about ourselves over against somebody else, I mean, isn't the question, what do we do? I mean, it's okay. I mean, this would be a time to answer back. At least I know, like, we've made some connections along the way, or you're still hung up with Buzz Lightyear over here. Mr. Fork. I mean, here's the reality. The reality, the, the, what makes this good news 
is that Jesus knows what both groups need, and they need the same thing. They need the good news that the God who they've come to know, revealed in Jesus, has determined to not be God without them, without us. That no matter whether someone else thinks we're not valuable or we overthink our, our uh, worth, we all realize that we're on the same boat. And that what we need is a God who said, I'll take it for you. Because that's precisely what happens. If Israel could not maintain their identity as God's people who would faithfully shape a community rooted in love, and we can't or don't, God says, I'll show you who can. And he gives us himself in Jesus. And he creates a community out of a bunch of just odd ducks who might fit this group who might fit that group and says, by my spirit, I'll show you how we can create a community that's shaped by love. Or, I'll show you that the kingdom of God shapes us in love. So that leads us, well, what do we do about this law? Well, what we do about it is we remember that the conditions of the law are set for our relationship with somebody else and not a scorecard to keep on ourselves. That if you think deeply about the Ten Commandments or deeply about Jesus's, but I say to you, what are both at, what's both at work there or what's at work in both of those? I'll get my English right. What's at work in both of those is to say, here is how God's love shapes you where your primary concern is the value of the other. Not in how your scorecard reads. That's good news. And it's good news that in the life of Jesus that we've been drawn into, the very picture that was painted in baptism this morning, this very life that Paul says is now hidden with Christ and God in Colossians 3, now we participate in the very life and community that Jesus creates that is shaped by love. You don't do anything to get into it. But by being in that community now become by God's spirit those who are shaped by love so there's still no scorekeeping there's still no scorecards what we do is we do what Paul told the Corinthian church that was our final reading for today and what Paul told the Corinthian church is you guys have decided that this teacher is better than that teacher is better than that teacher is better than that teacher you got it all wrong those folks don't do anything but give you what you need to hear. I'll take care of making what you hear work. That's what he says. Some say I'm of Paul and some say I'm of Apollos and some say I'm of Peter. But I'm telling you that all we do is plant the seed and give the water and God is the one who does the work. And since we don't get it the first time or the second, it's good news to know that God's the one who does the work. Aquino, who wrote for TechCrunch, who was upset with Mr. Beast, that is what he called Mr. Beast's um, inspiration porn, he called it. 
took such, such exception because from the time he was little, he had been treated because of his disabilities, as though he had no, no value, nothing to offer anyone. But in the name of Jesus Christ, we say to you today, you are someone in Jesus. You are someone who has been forgiven, who's loved, and has a place. And if you haven't heard that good news, if that's something you've heard for the first time, then we tell it to you today. Trust Jesus because you are loved, you've been forgiven, and you have a place. He is yours. Let's pray together.